0: Good morning. (laughs) Well, if this is your first time joining us here at Hosanna Christian Christian Fellowship, I wanna say welcome to all of you, both here in the room and online. We're so excited that you guys are here to worship with us today. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I am Pastor Nathan, and uh, today we're going to be in 1 John chapter three verses uh, 11 through 18, and we're also gonna be celebrating communion together. So if you're in the room with us this morning, hopefully you got your communion cups as you came in. Uh, If not, we'll have somebody walking around at the end of service with a communion tray to make sure you get, uh, get one. But if you're online, this is the moment to go get your communion emblem so that you can celebrate communion with us this morning. This morning, we're gonna be looking at four different levels of relationship that we can choose to live under as believers. And these four different levels of relationship, they all wrap around the concepts of love and hate. Two very big concepts. But the idea here springboards from John's thought that we closed with in our last study from verse 10 of 1 John chapter three, which was the idea of knowing which spiritual family you belong to. He said this in 1 John 3.10, he said, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, but here's the phrase, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. If you don't know this, love is literally the circulatory, well, not literally, right? You say that when you mean metaphorically a lot, but love is the circulatory system of the church. Love is what makes the church operate. It's also the greatest characteristic of the new nature that we have been granted through our salvation and our regeneration in Jesus Christ. Now, if the arteries of love are clogged in the church, well, guess what happens? The church is in danger of having a spiritual heart attack. And one of the key evidences of spiritual maturity in our lives, one of the key evidences of growth in our walk with the Lord as Christians and being God's children is the depth of our love for one another within the church and the expression of that out to the world. Today in verses 11 through 18 of 1 John 3, John returns to the theme of love. Christian love for the second time in this letter. And he's going to go on to speak about four different levels of relationship that we as humans have to other humans here on the planet. And then he's going to focus in on really the type of relationship that we should have as Christians to one another. In verses 11, 12, he's going to talk about the relationship of murder. Wow. Verses 13 through 15, the relationship of hatred. Verses 16 through 17, the relationship of indifference. And then in verse 18 he's gonna talk about Christian love in action. He opens up this section by reminding us that in the very beginning of our walk and from the very beginning of our walk, from the very moment of our transformation into God's children, we have been taught through both word and example that we should love one another. That's the foundation of Christianity, right? And, And not only is it the foundation, but loving one another is in line with the very nature that we have been given, granted by God through our salvation. And it's completely contrary to the way of the world and the way that the world operates. Our calling and our equipping through the Holy Spirit to live according to the new nature that we have been granted by God um, really is the best evidence that we indeed have a new nature, that we are indeed God's children. And so John illustrates this with the example of Cain and Abel that we're going to talk about later, and he uses that illustration of Cain and Abel as a picture of the difference between people who profess to want to follow God and worship him, but the difference between those who choose disobedience and those who choose um, righteousness. He goes on to discuss how our expression of love through action, through tangible demonstration, not just words, by effort by compassionate intentionality is the exact opposite of the sin nature, is the thing that demonstrates our salvational relationship with God, and is ultimately exampled by Christ himself, whose nature we are granted in salvation and whose likeness we bear as we endeavor to live in this world to glorify God. And incidentally, it's the very reason why the world hates Christians. It's the very reason why the world stands against those who profess Christ. According to John, he says, it's because those who live for Christ, those who choose to live like Christ, those who choose to to have a habit in their life of expressing godly love in action, the very action of doing that shines a light on the murderous, hateful, indifferent way of the godless world. John's already pointed out that the world may not understand us Christians because it doesn't understand God, but the world will know whose family we belong to. When we love one another the way God is calling us to, when we choose to love one another in a way that is ultimately completely foreign to the world, completely alien to them. And so, love, therefore, is kind of like a duty and a test. It's a duty in the sense that we're commanded as Christians, as Christ followers, to demonstrate love. We're we're commanded to. But it's a test in that our practice for love for others, our practice for love, with love for one another, demonstrates the reality, demonstrates the truth, demonstrates the nature that we are indeed God's children. But before we dive into all of that this morning, we want to spend time in worship, because God is worthy, God is love, God loved us enough to die on the cross, to take our punishment upon himself, to offer us salvation and freedom in him, and that is definitely something to praise him for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, so much for who you are. We thank you, God, for what you've done. We thank you, God, for our salvation. We thank you, God, that through faith in your sacrifice we have been made your children. And Lord, as John penned earlier in this chapter, what great love it is that we would be called your children, Lord. But God, you then call us to demonstrate that love towards one another, Lord. It's a love that is beyond this world, a love that defies comprehension, but it is a love that changes lives. And God, when we express this love, the world is confused, bewildered, because they don't get it. But Lord, we are so thankful that you've granted us a new spirit and a new nature and an ability to love others the way you have loved us. And that through that demonstration of love, God, the world sees what you want for them, the the desire you have to be in that love relationship with them. So God, today as we are here to get into your word, today as we are here to celebrate communion and remember what you did for us, God, let us reflect. Let us be reminded of the great love you have for us, the great love you desire us to express to one another, and the great love that you want to reflect out to a world that is lost without you. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. I'm going to read the whole section to you, but I'm going to actually back up to verse 10 just for context. So, It says, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in speech, but in action and in truth. Very powerful section of scripture. And verse 11 is really the grounds for the statement John makes in verse 10, right? You know, this is how you know if you're God's kid or if you're Satan's kid. You know, the one who does what is right, follows after righteousness, has a habit of that, is God's kid. The one who doesn't is the devil's kid. But then he goes, especially, especially those who don't love their brother or sister. The whole previous section to these verses, John was establishing who we are, right? We are children of God, born of him, We are children of God, and children of God are to live their lives as children of God, right? It's not a real difficult formula here. Because a child of God has been given, granted a new nature, they are called and enabled to live in a way that reflects that new nature. It's our practice. It's our habit of living John's been talking about. And that practice and that habit of living, it it proclaims who we are. It proclaims whose we are. It proclaims what we are. Now when he says there in verse 11, this is the message that you have heard, he's obviously, and of course referring to the gospel message, right? The gospel message, um, which, which is you know, everything about who we are, our need, the solution, God's love, right? It's all wrapped up in that, but it's, it's also referring to just God's truth about everything. And this message includes the specific commands to love one another. I've mentioned that in the past before. If you want an interesting study to do on your own, just go look up every verse that has the phrase love one another, or one another in it. And you'll find love one another, serve one another, da-da-da-da, over and over and over. The one another commands are are a significant part of God's teaching for how we are to um, behave and conduct our lives as his children, especially towards one another. But these commands that he's referring to involve these love one another commands. And this is what the apostles heard from Jesus, right? This is what they then have taught people. And so he's going, this is the message that you have heard. Right, you go back to the very beginning of letter, the, the letter that he's writing here, and he goes, look, that which was from the beginning, that which we've touched, that which we've seen, that's what, all, that's what we have proclaimed to you, Jesus, and who he is and what he's about. You also remember in John 15, 12, as Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. And I'm sure John had related that command as he heard it from Jesus to those he had the opportunity to minister to over the years. Love and hate are mutually exclusive in the Christian life. They're exclusives of one another because God himself dwells within the believer through the Holy Spirit, He, he lives within you. And the Bible tells us God is love. Therefore, a person who is God's child cannot be characterized by hate. It doesn't mean we might not have hateful moments or stumble and do something hateful as, 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 a, as a, like a one-time action, but to have the habit to be characterized as a hateful person is exclusive of that which characterizes God. And so John goes on to support this example with Cain and Abel in verse 12. He says, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Verse 12, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, the story of Cain and Abel is told in Genesis chapter four, verses one through 16. We're not gonna go there specifically for the sake of time, but, but there's several important things to note about that story as you read about Cain and Abel. One is that both were brothers with the same exact parents. Okay? They had the same parents. Both brought sacrifices to God, and both did so in an effort to worship God. But the problem was there was something about Cain's offering that if you go back and you read Genesis, it says it was not right. Now, there's different opinions on exactly wasn't right about it, and it doesn't specifically tell us, but it says it was not right. And the indication in God's communication with Cain that it was not according to God's will, that his offering wasn't presented according to God's way, according to God's standard. And so he evidently disregarded God's will and God's way and wanted to relate to God on his own terms. This is the problem with Cain. And that is why God rejected Cain's sacrifice, but he accepted Abel's. Abel's was apparently done according to God's will, God's way. Abel said, God, I'm gonna relate to you the way you tell me to relate to you, not on my own terms. Now, when Cain saw that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but rejected his own, he became very angry, very angry. And then, instead of doing what would follow in the nature of one who is God's child, he did what would follow in the nature of one who is the devil's child, right? It says there in John three that he was of the evil one. And what did he do? He murdered his brother out of jealousy. Murdered him, killed him. The word used there in the Hebrew for murder in Genesis, it means to butcher or to slaughter. The literal rendi- rendering of the word is to cut the throat. It's the idea of, of like when an animal's in a slaughterhouse and how they do that and it's, it's pretty graphic. But it says he did it because his deeds were evil. His deeds were evil, it's a phrase meaning that his, his behavior demonstrated whose nature he bore. His behavior, his action demonstrated whose likeness he bore, the devil. He was of the evil one. Now if you remember in John 8, 44, Jesus said Satan was a murderer from the beginning. So he acted after the one whose nature he bore. Now incidentally, it's the nature of the wicked to hate the righteous. It's the nature of the devil to hate God. It's the nature of those who bear the likeness of the devil to hate those and the actions of those who bear the likeness of God. And that's what John gets into in verse 13. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. That word uh, do not, when he says do not be surprised, it, it carries the verb tense of stop being surprised. And I think sometimes that's just a reminder to the church, right? Like, we'll, well, oh, of course the world hates me, and then we'll go on in life and whatever, and then the world acts hateful towards us, and we're like, ah! <gasps> He's like, stop being surprised. Stop being surprised at the world. People like Cain hate you. Stop being surprised. It's their nature. It's their nature to come against you. The world hates Christians for the same reason Cain hated Abel. Abel's righteousness, which, which was his living according to God's standard, right? Living in obedience to God, uh, endeavoring to say, God, I want to do what you want me to do, right? All that, his righteousness, it was the result of his obedience to the Lord. As you choose to be obedient to the Lord, it, it's a righteousness that, that, that develops in your life and a part of your lifestyle and how you live. And Abel's obedience revealed Cain's disobedience, the fact that Abel said, I'm going to follow God and do things God's way, the way God is calling me to do it, it revealed Cain's disobedience and his unrighteousness for what it was. Ultimately selfish, ultimately about him and not God. He was first. He was number one. And yet in his endeavor to, well, well I'm still going to try and have a form of godliness. Ultimately, God said, no, I reject your sacrifice because you, you don't come to me on your terms. You come to me on my terms. Because I'm God Almighty, you're not. Now when it says, don't be surprised if the world hates you, that word hates, the verb tense is is in the present tense. It means a a continuous, ongoing state of hostility. And so those who are of the fallen, demonically-influenced system, that's what he means there by the world, this whole system of, of existence that stands against God, when they have habitual conduct of, of hating you ongoing, you know, don't, don't be surprised because it's in line with their nature. But the flip side of that coin then, is a child of God should then behave in line with their nature. The nature that has been granted to them. And incidentally, I think one of the ways, and there's a few, but one of the ways you can know you're in God's family. Am I God's child? Am I saved? You know, I'm, I'm trying to live for him, and I'm trying to stand for him, and God, I stumble, but I confess, and God, I know you forgive me, and God, am I in your family? Well, one of the ways is when the world and those of the world keeps hating you for your habit of living according to God's standard. That's one of the ways. That, hey, am I in God's family? Does the world hate me? Yes, okay. That's the badge of honor we wear, in a sense, you know? When the world hates us for our stance for God. Now verse 14, he goes on to say, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. So here John is using the concepts of death and life metaphorically to refer to saved and unsaved. That's what he's referring to when he says death and life. So he goes, we know that we have passed from death to life. He's talking about those that have experienced this permanent change from the state of being unsaved to the state of being saved, to not being God's child, to being God's child, to having just the old nature, to now having the new nature that is granted to us through regeneration. This is what he's referring to. And so death in this context is talking about spiritual death or being spiritually dead, It's being spiritually dead, although you're honored by men. Spiritually dead, although you may have millions of subscribers, thousands and thousands of followers on your social media account. It's spiritually dead, though you may be in a place of great political power and control. It's spiritually dead, although you may be well-educated and just have, you know, just degree after degree after degree or have great wealth and, and resource to, to, to make things happen. It's spiritually dead, though, possessing and possibly being satisfied with an outward form of godliness. It's spiritually dead because of rejecting God's Son as the Savior. Rejecting Jesus, who is the Christ. Now this difference from, from saved and unsaved, it's, it's depicted in various ways in scripture and John's used a number of them, right? You see the concepts of being lost and then found, right? You have the concepts of being blind and then seen, the concept of being bound up and then free, the, the idea of being sick and then made well, walking in darkness, walking in the light, but I think one of the most severe and startling contrasts is going from death to life. When we, when we actively and intentionally as God's children express great care and affection and loyalty, which incidentally is what that word love means in the Greek, when we intentionally express that towards our family of Christ, when we, when we make the decision, when we choose to do that and be that way, it demonstrates that we have indeed been born again. It demonstrates that we indeed have a new nature. And it's not talking about just a one-time thing, right? Anybody can do that. Anybody can fake it. But it's talking about the habit, the lifestyle, the ongoing characterization of who you are. Those who don't have this habit, those who don't have this practice of love, John says here they remain in death. They remain in death they continue in their unsaved nature and they're proving their nature that they're not of God but of the devil, right? That idea of remain in death there, it's almost uh, the idea is that they stink of the grave is what he's talking about. You ever ran into somebody like that that maybe they profess a faith but the way they treat people, you're like, yeah, that's stinky. That doesn't smell right. You know, this is the idea here. So verse 15, he says, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Now you might read that and go, wait a second. How is one who hates somebody a murderer? Right? Aren't those two different things? Well, Jesus himself answered this question in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21 of Matthew 5, he said, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. One of the things that the religious elite prided themselves on is we, we follow the law. You know, I've never physically killed anybody. I've never struck anybody down and, and, and murdered them. But look what Jesus goes on to say, but I tell you, Everyone who is angry with his brother or his sister will be subject to judgment. Wow, that just caught all of us in the net, didn't it? Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Now the word angry there just simply means annoyance or, or displeasure that, that, that ends up with hostility towards someone. It's an annoyance or a displeasure that leads to the idea of like, gosh, I just wish someone would just take them out. I wish they would just be gone. When he says every, whoever insults his brother, it's interesting, insults, it's a term of abuse that was used in the culture to put someone down by insulting their intelligence. Today it would be calling someone an idiot. Verbal abuse. And then whoever says you fool, that word you fool in the original language is raka. It was, it was an Aramaic uh, uh, um, phrase of insulting someone, but unlike, in, uh, unlike insult, which is insulting their intelligence, raka was insulting their wisdom. They say, not only are you, are, you, are you an idiot, but you're also stupid. Not only do you lack knowledge, you lack common sense. This is what, what he's saying there. Now all three of these verbs incidentally are again in the ongoing, habitual, continual sense, but it's this idea of having conflict um, without any attempt to reconcile. It's the idea of just writing people off. I'm mad at you. I think you're dumb. I think you're, you're as dense as a rock, and so therefore I'm just writing you off. You should just go away and die. Who cares? What Jesus is establishing there is that hatred is, is, is an intense emotional feeling and, 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 and it's a, it, it has this desire to get rid of a person hoping they will die and so hatred as an intense emotional desire not only is a first step towards murder, but the point is is the person who hates is no different than the person who murders in their attitude, in their heart. So, so if you've gotten to this point, especially with a brother or sister in the Lord, and, and you hate them so much, you're so annoyed and you, you're just so, so fed up with them that you write them off and you no longer think about them, pray for them, have any concern for them. For all intents and purposes, they're dead to you. You might as well have slit their throat. Heavy, isn't it? Heavy. And he says, no murderer possesses eternal life. Now again, verb tenses here are are critically important because what he's not saying here is that a person who has ever committed a murder is beyond salvation. He's not saying that. Even a person who has committed a murder can be forgiven and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But when he says murderer there, he's talking about that habitual ongoing lifestyle to be characterized by. If no murderer is gonna inherit eternal life, what he's linking it to is nobody who murders in their heart, habitually, ongoing, continually, can be a person who's characterized as one who's gonna inherit eternal life. So regarding hate, it's not a question of what did you do, murder. It's a question of what did you want to do? That's hate. That's hate in the context here, and so we can have this murderous attitude and relationship with people, and, and, and people do that. Many more carry hate in their hearts, and they're murderous in their heart in their attitude and in their intention, and although they may never actually physically take the life, they might as well have it in their heart and we see that all over the world today. The issue of love and hate, it begins in our heart. That's where it starts. It's, it's, it's the heart that is judged. It is the heart that is looked at critically with God's eye. It's the, it's the heart that, 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 that God analyzes. If our heart is right, he's long-suffering with us, even when we make stupid decisions, even when we stumble and fall, even when our deeds are flawed in some ways. If our heart is right, he, he has patience with us and, and, and he works with us. But, but if our heart is wrong, no spiritual act of any kind is pleasing to him. And we saw that as he dealt with the Pharisees and other religious elites through the New Testament. Jeremiah seventeen nine it says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Our heart without Jesus is by nature deceitful. It's a liar. Go back to John 8. He said Satan was a liar from the beginning. Why? Because it's who he is. Guess what? Our heart without Christ is right in line with that nature. And even as a Christian, our heart works overtime to lie to us, doesn't it? Here's what God's truth says, but I don't feel that way. But God's truth, the reality is A, B, C. Yeah, but I feel differently. And incidentally, that's what's led to a lot of false teaching in the world today. My feelings must be paramount. My feelings must be the number one thing. So if my feelings contradict with God's word, well then God's word is wrong. My feelings are what matter. And so I'll live whatever lifestyle I want. Even though God's word says it's wrong, no, my feelings are what's important. The problem is, is your feelings change in a Drop of a dime, don't they? How many of us have ever gone from happy to sad like that? Or content to angry like that? Emotions waver. That's why we need the anchor, the truth of God's word to keep us in in line. Our heart without Jesus is deceitful because without Jesus, it bears the likeness, the nature of Satan, who is a liar, and it can't love the way God wants it to. God wants us to. Worldly love is ultimately selfish. Worldly love is indifferent to others. Worldly love is ultimately based on self, right? Worldly love will be like, oh yeah, I love you, I love you, because I'm getting something out of it, and as soon as I stop getting what I want, as soon as I stop getting out of it what I think I deserve, I don't love you anymore. And that's worldly love. It's what you do for me. It's how you make me feel. But our hearts with Jesus, completely different. The Bible says it's like a stone heart being replaced with a heart of flesh. It's a whole brand new nature, right? It bears the likeness and nature of God and is able to love, to love God and to love others the way God loves us supernaturally. It's unselfishly. It's it's charitably. It's sacrificially. It's really truly being about others without regard to self. It's I'm going to love you even if it hurts me. I'm going to love you even if it causes me to have to sacrifice. I'm going to love you. And it's this love that should be demonstrated in the life of a child of God. It's this love that the world goes, that doesn't make any sense. How do you love someone without getting something out of it? Or it being about getting something out of it? We can't say that we don't know what it looks like because we have the example of Christ, right? Verse 16, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I think every Christian at least is familiar with John three sixteen, right? Famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life, right? We hold it up at sports events still. But 1 John 3.16, it's just like it. It's another verse that talks about the love that Christ has for us, evidenced by his death on the cross. That Jesus, in his expression of love, he voluntarily, he unselfishly did what was best for us without regard for himself, right? Yes, he had a moment in the garden. Hey, Dad, if there's a plan B, I vote for that. But nonetheless, not my will, your will be done. So if plan A is the only plan and I've got to go through this uh, horrific, torturous, murderous ordeal to take on the sin of the world, to suffer their judgment, I'll do it. And he did so, right? There's many in the world today that consider the first law of life self preservation. Take care of yourself first. And there is a lot of truth to take care of yourself, right? You know, but but it's not take care of yourself at the exclusion of everybody else, and it's definitely not take care of yourself to the detriment of everybody else. That's not a biblical concept. Jesus teaches that the first law of, of life, the first law of spiritual life is self-sacrifice, and he didn't just teach it, he demonstrated it, he lived it so that we could emulate it and follow it through the power of the Holy Spirit. One commentator said this, when Jesus came to die for our sins, there was absolutely nothing lovely about us. It was like sunshine shining on the garbage dump. The pristine son of God stepped into this kind of world and let his love shine. The epitome of love is seen at the cross. Jesus is the walking definition of love. Only in the cross can we understand the love of God. The love of God is definitely something to marvel at, to wonder at, you know, it's, it's something you can't find in this world. But what's interesting about the love of God is it's both incomprehensible and, and very simple at the same time. Karl Barth, who's a Swiss theologian, once gave a lecture at, at a Union Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, some big famous seminary, and after this long lecture, he had a student come up to him. And uh, I don't know, I didn't get the gist that the student was trying to catch him or whatever, but the student said, hey, can you state everything you believe in one statement? Can you sum up everything you believe in one phrase? And so Karl Barth thought about it, and he said, yeah, I think I can summarize my theology with this one statement. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so doesn't that summarize the whole thing? You know, Jesus' death on the cross was once for all. That means his work on the cross is done once for all, forever. It's not a work that has to be un, or redone. It's not a work that can be undone. It's a work that is finished, and this is how we ultimately know true love. This is how we know godly love through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it sets the example of the self-sacrificial love that we are to emulate. It's, it's the type of love that's foreign to this world. It's the type of love that is impossible without Christ. It's the type of love that is only possible through the new nature granted to us in salvation. And therefore, that's why it's an evidence that we have a new nature when we love in a way we can't otherwise. Now, although it's entirely possible that a Christian would be called upon to, to literally lay down their life for another, and that has happened, and there are testimonies of that. More often, we are called to, to show our love to one another in, in less drastic ways. And so John moves on to this in verse 17. He says, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need with, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Now, have you noticed there the shift from brothers and sisters, plural, that he's been talking about, hey, brothers and sisters, hey, brothers and sisters, now he shifts to fellow believer, singular, right? The idea is that John is individualizing our call to love in specific circumstances, specific people. It can be sometimes easy to say, oh, yeah, I love everybody in general, and simply use that as an excuse to love nobody in particular. Oh, yeah, know I'm all about love. Well, let's see it, let, 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 let's see it, right? Now, a quick note, lest anybody feels like an impossible standard is set here in the Bible, right? If we're to love everybody, does that mean we have to like everybody? How do I go about loving people I don't like, even if they're in the family of God? I'm asking this question because some of you are asking this question right now in your head. There's people in our lives that we may not like, and God says love them, you go, like, how do I do that? That's really hard, right? Well, practically, uh, there, there seems to be a clear difference between liking and loving. Um, I mean, common sense and life experience make it clear to me anyways that that we simply cannot and, and likely will not like everybody we meet in our entire life, even in the church family, right? There's levels of relationship even within that. You know, it's, 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 it's personalities and, and temperament and behavior and mannerisms and a, and a whole bunch of stuff that... that I I think make it unlikely and inevitable that that we're gonna like some people more than we like other people, right? It's just kind of the deal. (laughs) But in that, don't forget, not everybody likes you either. Don't forget. Okay, not everybody likes you either. Liking somebody is, is largely a function of personal preference, right? You know, my personality gets, a you know, conflicts with that or gets along with you know. That's liking, but loving. Loving, however, it's a matter of obedience to Christ and the word of God. Loving goes past the superficial. It, 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 loving drills down to the very essence of who a person is, and it overcomes obstacles. It overcomes excuses. Godly love goes all the way to the point to say, although I might not like a person, I'm going to minimize those things I don't like so I could see them the way Christ sees them. And in doing that, seeing them that way opens up the door to then acting towards them, loving them in a Christ-like way. That's one of the keys to, to relational harmony, in my opinion. We all have things that make someone it could be our spouse. It could be our friends. It could be our kids and coworkers. We all have things in us, whether it's our personality, our behavior, our temperament, that just simply push buttons in other people. Like for some reason, they're like, oh, that just drives me nuts. And I always go, hmm, how much in my life might drive God nuts? But God says, you know what? I love you. Now, I think God likes me, too, and likes all of us, too, but you know, the idea is, is, look, those things that might create reasons for me to wanna separate from you, I'm gonna minimize those things so that we have a connection. And we have that connection to the blood of Jesus Christ. Loving people, incidentally, does mean treating them as if you did like them. Even though they might irritate you or get under your skin here and there, it's, it's you choosing to act towards them in a way that would please Christ. It's choosing to act towards them and and exhibiting the behavior. How would Christ act towards them and treat them? And that's why we have the example of Jesus. The very nature of Christian loving comes out of the nature of Christ. And if you have that nature of Christ, then it's gonna be a behavior that acts and gives and expresses itself unsacrificially, uh, unselfishly, unsacrificially, unselfishly and sacrificially towards others. And verse 17 gives a, a vivid picture of that, right? When he says the world's goods. You have the world's goods, right? That, that word simply means livelihood. It means having the resources whereby one lives. It's not saying that you're rich in this world's goods. It's not saying you have such abundance and extra. No, it's talking about the average ordinary person who just simply has the basics of livelihood at their disposal and is then able to help someone in need. This is where the sacrificial part of loving comes in, right? The other day I had an opportunity and someone, there was someone who um, their uh, wash machine broke and they're like, I literally have no means to get this fixed. I was like, well I've been saving up money for ABC but I have the opportunity, although it's kind of sacrificial at this point because I'm losing out on something else, you know what, their need is, is great, and so it was an opportunity to say, hey, I'll buy a washing machine for you. And they were like, I was just asking to get it fixed, and I'm like, no, nah, let's just get a new one. You know, it, it's that type of practical thing. You know, you, you, you might have to sacrifice on something, but you're willing to for the needs of others. And I don't say that to brag, it was just an example of, of, of practically reaching out to meet the needs of somebody. Sometimes we can but we don't want to, and that's where we make the bridge to loving somebody the way Christ loved us. He says, if you see your fellow believer, the phrase there is more than just a visual notice, it's a careful um, awareness of the situation. It's not just like, oh, I see them, hey, how you doing? Hey, God bless you. It's like, no, 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 I'm, a, I'm aware. I, I, I know what's going on, I know what the need is, and I know I can help. But the person who sees their fellow believer and withholds compassion, how does the love of God reside in them? Withholds compassion is better rendered, closes their heart. Closes their heart. It's the idea of slamming the door, locking it, throwing away the key. It's the idea of being indifferent. You have a great need. I know I could meet it, but eh, whatever. It doesn't really matter to me. I don't care that much. And then he asks this rhetorical question. How does the love of God reside in that person? You know, if we don't have the habit of, of loving others in, 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 in trying to follow the example of, of how Christ loved us sacrificially, if we don't have that habit um, to the world, to those around us, but especially those in the family of God, he, he's questioning whether or not the love of God resides in you. He's saying, how, how does it reside in that person? So as John has been saying, there's this whole section. It's, it's, it's about what is the norm of your life? What is the habit of your life? What is, the, what is the practice of your life? It's not about perfect execution without error, but what characterizes you? What is the overall general direction of how you live your life and how you behave in, specific, in the specific context of how you love one another? The world shouldn't see in the family of God or in a child of God the, the unselfish, me first, discompassion, uncaring, callous regard, gonna throw it in your face, gonna hold it against you forever, you know, type of um, love that the world has for its own. What the world should see is this, this foreign, selfless, sacrificial, supernatural love that puts the, the, what's best for others before even yourself. You don't have to physically murder someone in order to sin. Bible says hatred is murder in the heart. But you don't have to have hate in order to sin either. All you have to do is really be indifferent and uncaring. And sometimes that's the greatest sin of all. As a believer, we should reject all of that and have the capability or exercise what we have in the capability of choosing love in action. That's verse 18 and we'll close on this. Little children, let us not love in word or speech but in action and in truth. This is John's final exhortation. It's based on his preceding argument, right? If you have the world's goods and and you withhold compassion from your fellow believer, how does the love of God reside in you, right? Rhetorical question. So then he goes, so this is what we're to do. To love in action and truth. He goes not in word or speech. Those words are essentially synonyms, right? James put it this way in James chapter two. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is that? Right, what good is that? Rather, we're to love in action and truth. The word action there in the Greek is ergon, simply means to love in deed, to love by work, but it's interesting, that Greek word ergon, it's used in our English word ergonomics. What is ergonomics, right? Ergonomics is the study of workplaces and the equipment used in workplaces to make sure everything's designed to maximize efficiency and productivity, right? It's also used to, to describe equipment. You know, this is an ergonomic keyboard, right? It's, it's designed to maximize productivity and to maximize dependability and efficiency. Well, what he's saying here is our love for others should be ergonomically effective, Our love for others should be productive. Our love for others should be efficient. Our love for others should be effective. Meaning our love for others should be demonstrated as we meet needs in tangible ways. That might be a practical need. That might be an emotional need, right? You've all heard the talks about love languages. Everybody has a different love language. You know, the most successful couples I've ever observed are the ones who are like, yeah, I know my partner's love language and I speak it. (laughs) <laughs> Get fluent in that, you know? It's a beautiful thing to watch. It's a really chaotic thing to watch to say someone, this is my love language, and they're trying to force the other person to, I'm gonna love you the way I want you to love me, and, that, and, and it's just, it's chaos. Love people practically. Then he says truth. Truth there just simply means conformity to reality or actuality. Loving someone in truth implies dependability, so get this, we should love actually. We should love actually. He means be dependable in your loving. Actual, actually do it, carry through it, should be gen, genuine and demonstrated in action, and when it comes to putting love in action, sometimes we as believers, we can be like the lazy student in the classroom, right? How little do I need to do to get a passing grade? And, and to love actually means, nah, nah, I'm striving for an A plus. Now this is all in the context of, of, of as the Lord prevents and as the Lord leads and when you can, right? To be wise in all of that. But if our view of God is off, our actions will be off. And I've said that before. If we view God as a cosmic policeman, then all we see him is some guy running around waving the 10 commandments at us, right? Some can view God as a cosmic concierge, right? He's just ready to do anything to make life easier and safe without asking for any more than just a, a tip. But God is neither of those. God is our Father. He demonstrated his love for us on the cross by giving everything for us and, and he deserves our love. And then he calls us and expects us to and enables us to love others the way he loved us through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives but we will never do so appropriately as long as we're focused on number one. As long as me and my needs and my will and my way and my life are the most important thing in the world. People can be indifferent to the needs of others. People can hate people so much that they would wish ill on them, they would wish death on them. People go so far even to to actually murder people. But to love someone so much that you would take the harm that they deserve upon yourself. To to enter into another's suffering and to suffer with them and to suffer for them, wow, that's a love that is supernatural. That's a love that doesn't make sense to the world. And so we gotta focus on Christ. When we focus on him, when we focus on who who he is, what he did, when we focus on his word and his truth, it it keeps us on track, especially when our emotions are getting us all over the place. It keeps us on track. It's been said, you guys may have heard this before, that a rocket on its way to the moon is is off course 90% of the time, right? Because the moon's far away, right? So you point the rocket at it and you go pew. And then one degree off, well by the time it reaches the moon, man, that rocket's in outer space somewhere. And so every few minutes, a rocket on the way to the moon has a computer that has to course correct, right? It has to keep adjusting its nose back at the target. And without this focus on the target, without this course correction, it will miss the target completely. When Peter took his eyes off Jesus, what happened? He sank. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, what happens to us? We sink. And what is it we sink into? We sink back into the world's way. We sink back into the world's way of relationship. We sink back into the world's way of doing things, and that is why we need to constantly remember and constantly reflect on Jesus Christ, who he is, how he lived, what he's all about, what he did for us, and how that is the very foundation of the life we live, and that's what we do in communion. That's why we celebrate communion together as the body of Christ. That's why we come together and do this. And so we're gonna close today with communion. You should've all gotten one of your communion cups in here. If you did not, please raise your hand and one of our uh, ushers in the back, right up here in the middle, will make sure you get a communion cup. Okay, I think there's just one there. Quick instructions for those of you in the room. There's two tabs on here, there's a really thin plastic tab and a thicker one underneath. If you pull back the very thin one very carefully, it'll reveal the cracker here um, as a part of communion. You know, we open this section, John opened this section with the message that we have heard from the beginning. That message starts with the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The very reason God came to this earth to die for us. And on the last night of his being here on the earth, on the eve of his crucifixion, the the word of God tells us that he he took the bread as a part of this last supper. He broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that's what we do today. We do this to say, Jesus, I want to remember your body. I want to remember... by, by looking at this bread, this bread represents your body, Jesus, right? It's, it's, it's bread with no leaven because leaven represented sin and sin puffs up and so that none of that's in the bread, right? Because Jesus was without sin. He was perfect. He was without blemish. Because he was perfect and without blemish, this bread reminds us of the entire process of his suffering, his beating, his scourging, his being nailed to the cross, all of that, was him becoming the atoning sacrifice on the altar of God to pay the price for our sin. And he was brutalized. That was for us. He was tortured. The the pain he went through was horrific. That was a judgment that was for us. But he took it in our place. What love. What love is demonstrated by that? And, and, and that's the important thing to remember as we reflect on the body of Christ that was given for us. It was God's love that drove him to do that. It was God's great love for us that, that, that brought him to that place, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. Jesus was the only one without sin, he was the only one without sin, the only perfect acceptable payment for sin, and he still gave everything for us. When we reflect on the body of Christ, it should help us come to the place of remembering. You know, when I'm trying to judge my loved one, or my spouse, or my kids, or my friends, or my coworkers, when I'm holding things against them, da-da-da, we should never forget Jesus was the only one without sin. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that. Look, look at the sin in your own life before you get all high and mighty to judge others. Remember, he was the only one without sin. And he died for you. And he died for that person you don't like. And he expressed love to both of you and without that loving sacrifice we would have no hope of salvation. None, but because he loved you so much, because he loved me so much, because he is love, he took the judgment on himself. He took it on himself so that we wouldn't have to. So that instead of experiencing the judgment of God for our sin, we could then by faith in him be forgiven and then become children of God granted a supernatural nature because we've put our faith in him, because we have trusted in him for our salvation, because we've, 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 we've put our faith in everything that, that, who he is and what he did and all of that. We have been pardoned from the guilt of sin, forgiven, set free, and then given this nature his, as, as, as his children to be able to love one another as he has loved us, as he has commanded us to do and sometimes in our relationships that means we have to take hits. That's what love does. Sometimes we 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 we, we might have to take hits that that we, I don't deserve that. Neither did Jesus, but he did it because he loved us. Sometimes we're 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 in a place where are we like, I'm, I, I feel like I'm sacrificing so much. And Jesus says, I did that for you. Just follow me. Follow my example. Remember what I did for you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your broken body, Lord. Lord, we, we say that in the context, God, of, of, of your body being pierced. And and, and cut and brutalized Lord but we know according to scripture not a bone in your body was broken again pointing to the fact of you being the promised perfect atoning sacrifice for us but Lord you were you were just crushed Lord on the altar consumed and you did that voluntarily and willingly because you love us so much Lord, I pray as we reflect and remember what you did for us, God. As we partake of the bread that you have given us and say, remember my body. That God, we would never forget what you did for us. And that God, as your children, as believers, we would endeavor to live that way, God. That we would say, Holy Spirit, please empower me to do what I can't do on my own, to love as you loved. To forgive as you forgave to extend grace and mercy as you did. And Lord, we wouldn't let the devil get into our minds as, as, as some of us have, have broken relationships, that we wouldn't let the devil get into our mind and get us all puffed up on what we deserve and what's, what's just and what's, that we would say, I want to love the way God loves. Because he loved me. Because he gave it all for me. God, we thank you so much for that. We don't deserve it. And we know we don't deserve it, but we're so grateful for it. We love you. Let's partake together. So if you're in the room, the cup now, just grab the thicker tab and very carefully pull that back and it'll reveal the juice there. You know, when Jesus was with his disciples, he then took the cup, it says, and told them, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Right? It wasn't enough that we were just declared not guilty, but then our record was expunged, wiped clean, that if God would go back and look at our record, he would say, there's nothing there. He would be able to look at us through the blood of Christ and say, you have never done one single thing wrong. And we know. But he loves us that much. To wipe it clean. To never hold it against us. To never bring it up again. But to instead then help us every single day as we say, God, I'm so grateful for your death for me. And God, I messed up again he says, well, I've forgiven you again. Let's get up and keep walking. How glorious that is. He wants us to remember that in him and through him and because of him and nothing else, we're washed clean completely, born again with that clean record. All sin, including murder, hate, indifference, all paid for and washed away by his blood. And it was all because of his loving sacrifice. Through our faith in his atonement that we now can live every single day and every single moment, cleansed and empowered to forgive the way he forgives and and, and empowered to be righteous as he is righteous and empowered to love as he loves. We remember that he laid down his life for us. We remember that he did not withhold compassion from us but instead gave everything And so in communion here, we remember. We express gratitude and and, and our thanks by committing to living the love that God has for us. To live that out as we love one another, not just in word and speech, but in action and in truth as he did for us. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your shed blood. God, it's your blood that washed us clean. How dare we, Lord, hold a record against one another when you hold no record against us? Lord, we want to love as you loved us. God, and you gave the ultimate example of giving your entire life And Lord, not all of us may be called to that specifically, Lord, but we are called to love in action and in truth. Help us to do that, even when it's sacrificial, even when it hurts. Help us to do that, even when the devil's telling us, no, you deserve something else. Lord, help us to love others the way you loved us. To wipe away the record of wrongs. To forgive and move on, as you did in our lives. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for loving us this much. In Jesus' name, let's partake together. Well, I pray that God would bless you. I pray God would restore what's broken. I pray God would fix what's amiss. That if there's indifference in your heart, if there's hate in your heart, if you're on a trajectory towards murderous intent, I pray that God would break that now as you just say, God, please forgive me. As you would trust in what he did for you and trust in his Holy Spirit who lives in your life as a Christian as a child of God to say, God, help me to do and to be what I can't be on my own, because he will. I think he loves doing that because it glorifies his name. And as you move forward, ask God to help you forgive. Ask God to help you grant mercy. Ask God to, to give you opportunity to see needs, and when you see those needs and you know you can meet needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ especially, Meet those needs as God is leading you to. Trust him with finances. Trust him with timing. Trust him with all of it. God will work it out. But as we love one another, as a church here at Hosanna and and as the body of Christ around the world, the world will continue to see something that absolutely makes no sense to it. And for some, that example, that love, would draw them out of the darkness towards the light that we would have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus and to share the opportunity that they too have for forgiveness and hallelujah when another soul gets saved, amen? God bless you guys.